Hello, and welcome to the Weekly Brief, brought to you by The Daily Journal. I'm Howard Miller, contributing editor and podcast host for The Daily Journal. And today we're honored to have as our guest Kathleen Tuttle, who is the author of a remarkable new book, Lawyers of Los Angeles, 1950 to 2020. Full disclosure at the outset about how I feel about this book. I've reviewed it for The Daily Journal, and in the review I wrote that this book should be on the shelf of every lawyer in Los Angeles, every law firm with an interest in the law of California, or thinking of establishing a practice in California. It should be owned and read by all. The book is a true history, a true complex history, of lawyers of Los Angeles from 1950 to 2020. Kathleen Tuttle, who is the author of the book, is a Los Angeles lawyer, graduated from UC Santa Barbara and then UC Berkeley Law School. She began her career in Washington, D.C. in private practice, then went to Capitol Hill as counsel to the U.S. House Democratic Caucus, and then as minority chief counsel to the U.S. Senate Governmental Affairs Committee. She returned to Los Angeles in the mid-1980s and joined the Los Angeles County District Attorney's Office and became Deputy District Attorney, basically in charge of the antitrust competition and consumer concerns that the DA deals with. She is also a distinguished author, not only in the area of law, she is a historian of architecture and wrote the book on Sylvanus Marston, a much forgotten architect who did a great deal of the best and most long-lasting and influential architecture in Pasadena. Kathleen, thank you so much for taking the time to join us. Well, it's a pleasure, Howard. Thank you for having me. Tell us why you, you, you have a busy life, practice law, you've written a great deal, uh, you write regularly for all sorts of publications, wrote a very moving tribute to John Vandekamp and the California Historical Society books. Why did you turn to writing a book on the history of lawyers in Los Angeles from 1950 to 2020, and, and, and why those dates? Very good questions. Um, this, there's a simple uh, uh, short answer, which is that I have been a, a writer for a number of years. Now this is my third book, and got a call from Noland Hong, who was then, uh, in 2014, the chair of the L.A. County Bar, I'll, I'll henceforth say LACPA, LACPA's um, Senior Lawyers Section uh, Subcommittee on a History Book. And uh, he knew, I knew him through the Chancery Club, and he was aware of my writing. And his committee had met a few times, and they were looking around for an author and interviewing people. And he called and said, you know, people say that you may have an idea about how to do something like this. Would you be interested? And I should, um, and the answer was yes, and it kind of went from there. But um, I should also explain that the history, the subcommittee on the history book, um, was looking to do a sequel to a book called Lawyers of Los Angeles, which came out in 1959. And this by now is a little known fact. Um, it was written by W.W. W. Robinson and um, very much appreciated and acclaimed at the time. He was not a lawyer, so there are differences, I think, in how he went about it. And of course, technology was very different then. You couldn't look things up on the internet. 
But the committee thought, it's time, all these years have passed, let's do essentially a sequel. And so the gears started moving from from then on. And and I'll just finally say it was of great interest to me just because I've lived and breathed LA law and in very different capacities in private practice, public law, and the DA's office, um, and so forth, and have been working in and appearing in the courts, LA County courtrooms for 30 years. So it's something I thought I could really um, uh, build into a fascinating book. And uh, so there we are. Well, LACPA was was very prescient uh, in doing this. And ultimately, we should say the book has been published by LACPA, can be ordered through the Los Angeles County Bar Association. Uh, and then when you turned to the book and you started doing your interviews, what's interesting to me about the book, uh, and, and that's why I entitled my book review uh, that I wrote for the Daily Journal, A Complex Golden Age, is you didn't do what so many people would do compiling a book like this and just talk about successes and how much had been achieved. You really wrote a book that not only talked about what had been done, but was very candid about the challenges that we become more and more aware of as the years have gone on, but gone into the history of how those challenges of exclusion and discrimination of all kinds, how they played themselves out. What what was it that led you to decide, <clears throat> and with LACPA, uh, to do a book that explored the complex relationship instead of being what otherwise would have been as a coffee table book with a lot of pictures that said how great things were? Well, two things, and, and thank you for asking about that. Um, I don't think it would have been as interesting to me. And I don't feel I've done coffee table books um, uh, in any of the books I've done, even though obviously the architecture book that you mentioned uh, was very nicely illustrated. But I, I like to go deep and find reasons and um, you know explanations for what occurred. And um, so it, 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 that's, that's the book that was interesting to me. Second, I don't think it would have been credible for the LA County Bar to uh, simply put out a puff piece or a whitewash. You can't really get away with that kind of thing these days. And it would have it would have done nothing for the Bar Association and, in fact, I think would have harmed it. You know, this is, this is a period of time when people, um, through all sorts of extra media now, find out answers and look behind things and do some of their own due diligence. And, you know, you don't want to put out a puff piece and then have people just laugh at it and say, this is a joke. This is only a quarter of the history. I myself didn't actually know where some of the uh, rough patches in the L.A. County Bar's history were. But, you know, in some ways, those, when I came upon them, uh, like its effort in the late 40s and into 1950, um, eradicating the silent color line, in its its membership, um, it, that becomes the real story. What were the um, what were the what was the dichotomy in the membership? What were the problems? How did they surmount 
that? How did they meet the challenge? And I know, Howard, you and I have talked um, more recently about how the bar now is facing its own set of challenges, but it's that human endeavor to improve and to grow and to move forward that the bar learned back in time and learns and is learning now and, and, and has to to survive and thrive and adapt. Well, let's go right to what, what you've mentioned, those period in the 40s and the 50s. It was against the background. And, and we just have to say the book is complex and it talks about challenges. But the period that you've written about from 1950 on is a period of huge success in conventional measures of law practice. The number of lawyers grew. In 1960, there were about uh, uh, 15,000 lawyers uh, in, in, in California, about 30,000, I think 30,000 lawyers for 15 million people, one for every 500. Uh, today, there are about 200,000 for 40 million, one for every 200, two and a half times the number of lawyers. Law firms grew in the mid-century. They were the largest ones in L.A., were 30 and 40. Uh, today, they're dominant internationally, many with, with thousands lawyers and more in many cases, cases that didn't exist in mid-century Law firms that didn't exist in mid-century have built through the cases they've handled and other things to become among the most prominent and successful law firms in the world. There has been huge increase in specialization. We can quickly recite all the successes because people are familiar with the astonishing success of the Los Angeles legal community. But take us now to the moment of crisis that you mentioned, because during this period, there was outright discrimination against many in the institutions of the bar, including the L.A. County Bar. So take us through that history, because today, uh, in, in, in an equally important context and with things that have happened, we're facing exactly the same kind of issues. So what happened then? Well, um, I, I actually um, knew as much about this, this issue of voting to re- remove the color line and integrate the bar, uh, I knew as much as existed in the book that came out in 1959, which said merely that the it was called then the L.A. Bar Association without the word county in it. That changed in 1960. But the LABA um, uh, struggled with this issue. And uh, that 1959 book simply recounts their three different votes. Um, and so I was really going to sort of pick up on what it said um, and incorporate it in this sequel. And briefly what it said was, um, in July 1945, they voted to amend the Constitution by adding the phrase, quote, neither race, color, creed, nor national ancestry shall be a bar to membership, unquote, and it lost two to one. And then on December 8th, 1947, members voted on the same motion though the uh, vote tally is unknown, except that uh, the measure went down again. Suddenly, in January 1950, the membership was again pressed to say whether or not qualified Negroes, which was the word a book, you know, of, of 1959 vintage used, should be admitted, unquote. The ballots were mailed and then counted on January 16, 1950, and the proposal passed two to one. Well, I was going to let it go there, 
but then in all of my research, which was pretty considerable, I read, um, oh, at least a dozen oral histories, one of them being of Herman Salvin, who is someone that you knew, and you and I have both discussed him, and we know there's a lot more to say uh, in this um, podcast about him. He was so remarkable. Um, but in his oral history that was done by UC Berkeley uh, Oral History Project um, and came out in the late 70s, which was way beyond when that 1959 volume had had come out on L.A., on Lawyers of Los Angeles, um, suddenly right in the middle of the oral history, uh, he said he, uh, he recounted the whole well, he really shed tremendous light on why things changed in that third January 1950 vote. Um, and we're lucky that we have this because there's very little record, no newspaper coverage at the time, and only one small bar bulletin reference stating that the bar suddenly saw the light. Well, Herman Selvin discussed and this was the great revelation, the impact of a highly contentious but seemingly unrelated topic had on repeated efforts to integrate LABA's own ranks. He said that in, and remember the time frame, this is 19, late 40s and into 1950. He said that in every effort to admit black lawyers prior to 1950, it was always the red hots quote-unquote, lawyers who were left-leaning and or suspected of being communist who would wrest control and lead the charge. Those were Selvin's words to open up the L.A. bar. And I'm quoting Selvin again. He said, given the temper of the times in those days, it was enough to put the kiss of death on any proposition, whatever its intrinsic merit. And so I, I ended up using this expression in the book, reaching a different outcome on the racial question needed the stroke of a mastermind. And that's um, the term I use to describe what Herman Selvin did at the time, and he was vice president of the bar, and Dana Latham, who founded Latham and Watkins, um, did. Dana was the president. They got together and... Um, along with a small group of bar association officers who were planning, uh, who, who, you know, went forward and, and figured out how they, ha how they could get beyond this. And they said, look, it has to be a proposal from the leadership and the trustees, trustees and officers. And we need to keep it very quiet and not publicize it and send out those ballots and have them, voted upon and sent back in before these left-leaning lawyers um, seized upon it as their issue. Uh, of course, those lawyers were trying to do the right thing, um, but no one, the rest of the membership, did not want to risk affiliating with them in any way. So you see what happened. The Bar Association led the charge and... Um, uh, Selvin says, uh, if we kept everything secret, um, I was convinced that the measure would pass. I knew a lot of lawyers, and I didn't think 
the majority of them believed in the color line, and it turned out that way. Now, I like to interject here. Um, just note that for the two votes taken prior to 1950, there's no reference to mailed ballots, raising the possibility that prior votes were taken, you know, during meetings or in in some fashion. Uh, even a show of hands, the bar was very small then, and in the midst of a wider audience where peer pressure may have influenced, you know, some members to shy away from change. Um so that's how they got beyond it. And so of the two issues that were paramount in the 1950s, the House on american Activities McCarthy era and um, civil rights, you see here, here how they both got intertwined. And so that's, that's how they got beyond that. But isn't it much more interesting to plumb the depths and find out what turned that vote around you know, it just, it adds so much to our understanding of what was going on then. Yeah, and to many, to many, you know, that really sounds not only like ancient history, but difficulty in understanding even how it had to be handled that way. But the key person here, who you've mentioned, Herman Selvin, uh, is almost in his own life symbolizes uh, both the success of L.A. law practice and the the difficulties of of discrimination and exclusion. By any measure, Herman Selvin was one of the most successful lawyers in California. He regularly argued before the United States Supreme Court to great success. He was a leading entertainment lawyer and litigator. Uh, anyone who was asked at the time who should go to for a litigated case, Herman Selvin's name was among the two or three that were always mentioned. He lived in a different time. He prepared for his arguments before the United States Supreme Court by taking the super chief with a bunch of books. And he got a, a location in the, in the super chief car that was private. And he took along his briefs and 10 or 12 books. And for three days, he looked and he showed up in Washington and he, he, he argued in, in front of the court. But for all his success, Herman Selvin throughout his career until near the very end, but for a very long time, was the only Jewish member of the Jonathan Club and no one else in the club except for one or two exceptions. Uh, would have lunch with him. Uh, and, and so he, in many ways, shows in his life the success and the difficulties of, of what were happening. Yeah. You, you've told the story in terms of, of, of what was then called the color line, blacks and African-Americans. But of course, there was a lot that went have gone on over the years uh, in terms of, of others, women especially, in terms of the growth of, of, of women in the profession. Without talking about formal votes, what are what are some of the things uh, that has occurred that led to the dramatic change uh, and great success that we've seen, though much more to go, uh, in opening up equal opportunities uh, for, for women? Well, sure. Uh, and before I continue to move forward uh, in, in response to your question, I wanted to just drop this little anecdote um, Seth Huffstedler, who's, I think he just turned 96, God bless him. Um, you know, exactly. He's been such a force in LA and California law, but he told me in an interview that, you know, he was very close to Herman Selvin. Uh, and once, uh, Herman Selvin was admitted probably after, you know, great effort, um, uh, 
Selvin, no one would eat lunch with Herman. So uh, Seth would go over all the time and have lunch with Selvin at Selvin's club, which was, you know, not that welcoming. And all of that with the private clubs took a very long time. But Howard, you ask, well, what, what were some of the efforts that came later, if any? And, and there are a lot of interesting vignettes about women in the law as well. But one very helpful thing that I salute the L.A. County Bar for doing um, in uh, addressing this issue is that in 1974, the trustees and the officers passed a resolution, um, the wording, the technical wording of which escapes me at the moment, but the gist of it was um, any bar functions uh, section meetings, uh, trustee meetings, what, what, what have you, none of them could occur in um, private clubs that continue to discriminate. And of course, they all discriminated at the time. And that was, you know, one thing that seemed uh, worth doing. But you know what? It gathered steam. And uh, the banks picked up on what the bar had done and uh, other downtown businesses. This was very much a downtown issue because that's where um, most of the private clubs were. Uh, and it ended up feeling a lot like a boycott to these clubs. And it started chipping away at their conscience and their policies. It still took a long time, but that uh, added it, it incentivized the clubs. It just got their attention. They had to they had to wrestle with it. They had to deal with it. There's an important perspective here that I think we sometimes approach it from dealing with people that have historically been excluded. And I know that some people listening to this will find uh, ask questions about this. Uh, you know about how old fashioned the the dispute seemed to be. But we're dealing with the same kind of issues in many ways in more dramatic areas. And one of the perspectives that I think is important is though this is and appropriately talked about as a matter of harm to those who are excluded, what is often left from the discussion is the harm to the larger society by denying themselves the talents of the people who've been excluded. We look at the people who are now functioning at the highest level of success on the California Supreme Court, the United States Supreme Court, senior partners of law firms, who during the time we're talking about 40, 50 years ago, would never have been considered uh, to even become members of the law firms. It's what was lost by the larger society, by the exclusion, yeah. that is a very, very important perspective. And interestingly enough, I, I, I became aware of this in another context when Major League Baseball added to its statistical, its basic statistics, statistics from the Negro Leagues uh, before and, and after uh, Jackie Robinson integrated baseball. And, you know, in the 11 years after Jackie Robinson came to the Dodgers, in nine of those 11 years, the most valuable player in the National League had played in the Negro Leagues. If you now look at the list of baseball mm -hmm. statistics, you'll see a name that I doubt is known to even one in 10,000 baseball fans, Josh Gibson. Josh Gibson hit 
hundreds of home runs. Some say over 800. It depends where, what it was. But people at the time who saw both Josh Gibson and Babe Ruth and who referred to Gibson as the black Babe Ruth said they had it backwards, that Ruth was the white <laughs> Josh Gibson. Uh, un- a common I think that's, un- yeah, common understanding. that's a marvelous it's, story. Yeah, Satchel Page it's was just- probably, probably the greatest pitcher. Uh, and, and so it's what we lost in those decades from the talent that was excluded. Yes. And that has to be a yes. part of the discussion about why we need to keep bringing people still being excluded for all sorts of reasons. Yes. Because it's the talent we lose uh, that, yes. that hurts us all. Yes. And it's a way of helping people view the issue in a way that will help them. Change will be good for them because it'll be an organization, whether it's a law firm or a bar association, um, it will become even better. And, you know, this whole issue um, we can bring forward right to today, which you mentioned a few minutes ago. Um, This book was at the printer last summer when the Black Lives Matter, well, the uh, to back up, the um, when uh, George Floyd uh, was killed at the hands of the Minneapolis police and the whole, um, the demonstration and protest um, that uh, occurred in reaction and, and in Los Angeles as well. We remember how heated those times were in many parts of the country. And so here is this book sitting at the printer, ready to go through the process. And um, we, we literally stopped the press and made a decision. And that was to cap the word black, which um, the LA Times had decided to do about one week before this. And our concern was... By cap, you mean start with an initial letter, capital B. Yes. Yes, I'm sorry. Yes, correct. Um, uh, we thought this, this book is going to stand for on the, on the shelves for many years, and we could see the way things were going, and we were listening to what was being argued. So it... Um, you know, the the issues of the 50s continue to resonate. And uh, there was there's even a, a section in the book on the small cadre of civil rights lawyers uh, like Johnny Cochran in his early career who focused on and, and represented victims of LAPD abuse. And... Um, uh, you know, the very good and frankly not very popular, except for the victims, very popular work um, among the Bar Association and lawyers' organizations. But um, uh, we give it some, we give it some um, attention because, of course, those issues resonate today here in L.A. Yeah, that's one of the names. You know, Johnny, as the phrase we sometimes use before he was Johnny Cochran in the sense uh, before the Simpson trial. But, you know, exactly. Johnny, like many, started, uh, you know, at, at coroner's hearings, uh, uh, seeking a, a kind of truthful result and, and labored in the fields uh, 
for many years uh, before having the larger impact uh, that he ultimately had. Yes. And there have been an equivalent yes. growth uh, in, in, in the civil rights community. Again, I mentioned Herman Selvin. Uh, you know, in, in the age before uh, large cadres of civil rights uh, lawyers, uh, as I sometimes say, you know, before Mark Rosenbaum and the ACLU and public counsel. Yes. Uh, Herman Selvin right. was the civil rights. He argued the case of, of Mulkey versus Reitman, great success, the U.S. Supreme Court, yes. whether an, an initiative that overturned a fair housing statute could be, uh, you know, would, would be constitutional. He ultimately won the in the U.S. Supreme Court. Uh, on a five to four uh, decision. But what was emblematic of people working together at the bar, one of the counsel on the other side of, of him in Mulkey versus Reitman was a partner at Gibson Dunn and Crutcher, Sam Pruitt. Uh, and Sam and Herman Selvin worked together in, in, in areas like uh, the developing public interest law and in other areas yeah. that involved the whole profession, even though they were on other sides of this case, it was the respect they had for each other as lawyers that led them to work together. And for those who are hearing us talk about this, and I know having spent a great deal of time with, with uh, several younger generations who, when they hear some of this discussion, think that it's quaint, I can assure you that years, decades from now, when books are written about our time, the people looking back on what we are dealing with will consider them inconclusive and not sufficiently done well enough. Uh, history yeah. will judge us the way we've judged the past. And so it's important to, to get back and, and see what people were wrestling with in those times. The other things that, that growth enormously has been the growth, not just in the civil rights community, but the growth of public interest law. But before we turn to that, I, we do have to take a break because in listening to this podcast, you know you can receive one hour of MCLA credit for it. But you should know how to do that. So we'll take a, a brief break so you can hear how to get the MCLA credit, and then we will return. The Daily Journal is proud to provide the weekly brief and other content as MCLE credit. Head to dailyjournal.com MCLE to see all the available content and more information on how to earn one hour of MCLE credit all from the comfort of your home or office. Read an article, listen to a podcast, get credit. Though the COVID-19 pandemic is far from over, its impact on courts and the judicial system have been far-reaching and widely felt. Please join the Daily Journal, Journal Technologies, and an esteemed panel of judges and court executive officers on January 28th for a free webinar called COVID and the Courts. The panel, moderated by Judge Jeremy Fogel, will discuss how the pandemic affected court operations, the ethical concerns it poses now, and how the judicial system will be impacted in the years to come. For more information and to register for the event, go to dailyjournal.com slash webinars. We're back now and we left talking about the growth of, of public interest law uh, and the, the public interest law community. So let's go back to the to the, even the 60s. Uh, we don't have a very vibrant, what we now call public interest legal community uh, in Los Angeles in, in the 50s and 60s. Do we? We have the Legal Aid Society, and, and that's about it. Before the Office of Economic Opportunity comes along, and the Legal Services Corporation 
starts to fund legal service. So tell us about the growth of that. Sure, absolutely. May I just say one more thing about your comment that Sam Pruitt and um, Herman Selvin on different sides of the um, Reitman v. Mulkey case, uh, housing uh, discrimination, uh, that in in the sort of mm, mid-70s or so, that was a, or maybe early 70s, um, after that case came down um, and the Supreme Court sided um, uh, with uh, Selvin's position um, that the 14th Amendment had been violated and so forth, um, there was a real hue and cry that Sam Yorty actually was one of the um, um, biggest voices in, um, and, and this was all over the LA Times, uh, saying that the um, uh, the the Supreme Court uh, just vilifying people who were on Herman Selvin's side, and um, in a way that we don't see as much today, lawyers, other lawyers um, who were who were colleagues of each of each of these gentlemen, Selvin and um, Pruitt. Uh, some 400 lawyers came together and signed some petition or made some statement about how they all stood together and that um, the uh, Supreme Court's opinion must be honored. It was a very difficult um, decision for them. And this is, you know, we must honor the rule of law. They hung together. They really hung together. It was nice to see even though they were on different sides of the issue. And we are dealing with echoes, with echoes of, uh, of that issue today. Uh, but the position that, that, that uh, in, in, in Mulkey versus Reitman that Herman Selvin was able to take uh, in, in, in today's world, uh, there would be no difficulty finding counsel to help him. So and because of yes. the growth of legal services and especially because of the growth yes. of pro bono work by law firms, because amazingly yes. from mid-century to today, pro bono work and legal services have gone from a minor adjunct uh, of the legal profession yes. to centrality because the best law students measure the firms they want to go to by how much pro bono work uh, they do. So how did that develop? This has been, uh, frankly, a bright spot in the evolution of L.A. law in Los Angeles. There are national legal publications that rate law firms. And in the old days, in the 50s, you know, the point where this book begins, um, it was all about who, well, these publications didn't even exist then. <laughs> but, but the reputations who were the best firms? It was all on the basis of um, credentials, and uh, it was really just one category. Now, um, of equal importance to the caliber of lawyers and what law schools they come from and were they on law review, is do they have a pro bono practice? How extensive it, is it? And even do they have a pro bono coordinator? Because this is very common 
in law firms now. And so things really did um, evolve for the better. I think uh, one of the one of the the reasons is that um, what what began to change, I think, is that public counsel, um, which I think began in the late set, uh, excuse me, sixties, um, it's it it grew to be the largest um, nonprofit public interest law firm, really in the United States, and it's still that to this day. But it was really on hard times in the early 70s, uh, 71, 2, 3, and into the the mid-70s. And um, they approached the L.A. County Bar at a time when access to justice had become a very big issue. I'm going back just a bit, but... In 1970, um, the, uh, there was the Chicano Moratorium in East Los Angeles, which has been covered extensively um, on its anniversary uh, so many years later, been covered um, a fair amount in the past year. And in 1977, uh, in a very emotional meeting, where it could have gone up or down, the county bar voted to uh, to join and to co-sponsor, um, be a be a partner with public counsel, um, and gave him gave it an infusion of money, twenty five grand for the first year, and then for for many years, um, it was um, it was a um, uh, the public council got money through our um, L.A. County Bar um, dues on an annual basis. But we, the county bar gave them a lot of money. And so the development of public council, um, the L.A. Legal Aid Society, which dates back to the 30s, 1929, I think it was, on, and it was then housed on the USC campus, all of these um, organizations uh, built, you know, developed over time, and other organizations were created. It was when there was a lot of ferment in American society, and right here in Los Angeles, that things were unequal, that um, we needed to reach out and do more, do more good. Um, the NAACP, ACLU, MALDEF, BETSEDIC, Inner City Law Center, um, Center for Law and the Public Interest, Western Center on Law and Poverty. They have done amazing things. All of these things came to the fore. And um, in some law firms, uh, partners, lawyers, uh, all lawyers are expected to fulfill a certain number of um, devote a number of hours, and it's not just a few, to public pro bono efforts. It came to the fore, as so many things do, turning on some courageous decisions 
uh, by individuals. One of the things I, I talk about in the review of the book is that this period was, was an age of craft. It was an age where individual qualities of lawyers made a difference. Uh, we mentioned Sam Pruitt. This is a history in terms of dealing with the institutions I am more than familiar with. I represented California Rural Legal Assistance in the late 1960s when the Modesto, when, when the Stanislaus County Bar Association uh, sued the California Rural Legal Assistance Office before it opened in Modesto to close it down. And in this period, this is late 1960s, the, the reason I had to represent California Rural Assistance is because no establishment law firm in Los Angeles or California would undertake the representation and no bar association would undertake a position contrary to the position that was being taken by the Stanislaus County Bar Association. And the reason that finally resolved itself is because, again, mentioning his name, Sam Pruitt, then at Gibson Dunn, who was then president of the state bar of California, and without going in, into details, I had a long lunch with him at the USC Faculty Center, and we talked about what was going on in the case and where it was going. And as a result of his intervention, the Stanislaus County Bar then dismissed that suit. Now, you know, you just make the contrast in time. Today, if, if, a, if a rural bar association sued to close down a legal services organization, the major law firms in California would be fighting uh, to be key counsel in that case. But they had no, no law firm would. Mention Herman Selvin again. I called Herman personally, who I'd never met, told him what it was about, and he individually came in as co-counsel to help work on the case. But it was the decision of a few individuals, a few individuals who started the Western Center, part of the group that started the Western Center at Law and Poverty at, at, at USC. It was initially based at USC. Uh, and I think to much regret of USC today, it, it, it left the campus. But these decisions are made, we talk about institutional decisions. They're not made by institutions. They are made within institutions by some leaders who, as part of what they believe in, have the skill and, more importantly, the values to push for what mm -hmm. should be done. That is the lesson, I think, the interviews that you've had, the people we're talking about. Sure, the Legal Services Corporation has made a huge difference in funding still ongoing battles, but it's because at critical decision points, and as I said, I, I lived through this in the, in the CRLA suit in Modesto, working with Sam Pruitt and Herman Selvin. At critical decision points, it's what individuals decide, just mm -hmm. as the, what you've recounted in terms of the votes at the L.A. County Bar, that ultimately mm -hmm. move the institutions to make the right decisions. That, I think, is one of the great lessons of, of, of your book. One of the things I, I say in the book review is that your book really illustrates the truth of what Emerson said, that there really is no history, there's only biography, uh, because it's individuals who do things, and to understand how it moved, and that's so much of what you do in the book, as many of the things you've spoken about, is get back to the day-to-day -day decisions of the individuals that made the critical pressure points to move. And, and we're facing those same kind of issues today. And again, it will take individuals within institutions uh, to make those mm -hmm. kind of, of 
of determinations. And I just want to say one of the great one of the reasons I was so taken with the book in going through it is that you, you write about these things not as large historical forces, but with the specific names and the specific events of the people who led to the change. And that's what turns the phrase is that's what turns memory into experience. We don't just get the report of what happened. We get the understanding of the motives and the people who had to make the difficult decisions. Uh, and that's, yeah. again, that's so much a virtue of what you've done. Well, thank you so much for that. Um, I, uh, I, I'm uh, just so grateful that, that you've enjoyed it. And, and it, it, it makes a statement because you've, I wrote the book on the 50s to now, but you lived the book from the 60s to now. And so, um, you know, it, it means a lot to hear you say that. But, you know, we've talked about uh, what is history. Um, and most people think a book of history, and this is a book of history, um, might be dull and tedious. Unfortunately, history got that bad name somewhere back in time. But this book um, is told through people. It's people. And it's told by the voices of those who lived the era, at least as much as I could. And part of what enabled me to do that is that I relied a great deal on back issues of the LA Times. And, uh, and I, I really have to give a plug for that newspaper and all newspapers. I think they're so essential and certainly for writers um, they're such a treasure trove, but journalistic writing is is writing about an event as it's unfolding, as it's as it's happening, and so including you know much um, coverage from the LA Times, uh, depending on the issue, it gives a sense of immediacy. You know, this is happening; it's happening to this person right now. <laughs> and and I think, uh, you know, hopefully that that will come through, you know, uh, Howard, I, I think I, I um, in going back over something to comment on what you were saying, we missed uh, women in the law. I don't know if we want to say a few things about that. Um, I think we do. I think we do. We will have to take. Okay. We okay. will take an, another break before we we, we take sure, a break. Sure. I just want to say to those listening uh, who, who may be younger. And I hope there are younger lawyers listening to this. Even though I must say personally, as Kathleen says, I've lived through this from the '60s through today and knew personally so many of the people uh, in the book and worked with many. And as I as I read the book and I, I realized what had been done, I regretted that I hadn't talked more about the people I was working with, about what had gone on in their past, uh, about the, the struggles and what they'd had to deal with. Uh, I mean, I wish I could go back now and interview and talk with some of the people I worked with so closely about the things that I now know they were part of in the history so in the midst of, of daily life and, and the difficulties of dealing with the pressures, uh, when you're working with interesting people, uh, take a moment, interesting people who may be a little older yeah. than you are, but who've gone through uh, notable events or who you know have done interesting things, uh, take a moment in the midst of the, of the flurry of the day uh, to say, gee, can you tell me more about this? Uh, 
uh, because learning about it yourself at the time uh, just gives a perspective on what you're dealing with uh, that is really uh, quite important. And having said that, we now will take another break. And the reason is we're talking about news from the past and news to today. But the Daily Journal covers a great many news stories. And let's take a break and hear some of the stories the Daily Journal uh, is, is covering now. And then we will be back. The Weekly Brief is brought to you by The Daily Journal, California's largest legal newspaper. Here are some of our top stories from the week of January 11th. Newly elected Los Angeles District Attorney George Gascon appears to be considering reversing course on sentencing enhancements. Gascon faced backlash after he announced in his inaugural address that he would order prosecutors to no longer seek sentence enhancements for certain charges. The decision drew criticism from other DAs across the state. San Diego County DA Summer Steffen and Sacramento County DA Anne-Marie Schubert took the unprecedented step of revoking jurisdiction from Gascon over the issue. The criticism took another unexpected step further when the California District Attorneys Association announced it would back a lawsuit challenging Gascon's directives and sentencing guidelines. Though some have defended Gascon, saying he's within his right to enforce criminal law in L.A. County as he sees fit, others say it's a matter of ethics. The DA's association is expected to file an amicus brief by the end of the month. The October 2020 bar exam results are in, and 60.7% of test takers passed. It's the highest pass rate since July of 2008, and the group of more than 9,000 test takers is the largest to attempt since 2013. The high pass rate comes with a caveat. It's the first test to be scored with California's new lower pass score of 1390. However, the lead-up to this bar exam was fraught with controversy. The exam moved online because of the pandemic, and students and law school deans expressed concerns over the exam's accessibility and efficacy. Some deans pushed for the exam to be open book, and many students reported technological problems that could lead to cheating, discrimination, or getting locked out of the exam entirely. Ultimately, ExamSoft, the company that developed the software to run the online test, said 97% of people were able to submit their test answers. A U.S. district judge ruled that while Secretary of Education Betsy DeVos could not be deposed for a lawsuit, citizen Betsy DeVos can. Judge William Alsop sided with plaintiff's counsel in a lawsuit challenging DeVos's decision to halt processing applications by defrauded students seeking debt relief. The now former education secretary resigned from President Trump's cabinet earlier this month, which Alsop said now means she can be subpoenaed for deposition in this lawsuit. Before getting the go-ahead to depose DeVos, plaintiff's counsel said four other department officials were no longer forthcoming with information and instead pointed to DeVos as the person with the authority to form denial notices. It's unclear at this moment whether Department of Justice attorneys will represent her or if the now citizen DeVos's attorneys will take over her representation. To read these stories and more, go to dailyjournal.com slash articles. We're back now from the break. And just before we left, we were going to talk some more about the remarkable growth of, 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 of women in the law, not just the barriers that were faced, uh, but, but the great success. Kathleen, you, you, you were going to comment on that. Sure. But now you always raise these things. And, and then I want to go back to them and, and hear you out. I was going to make you promise before the break uh, that after the break, you would talk about being at um, Mitchell, Silverberg, and Nup, one of the preeminent entertainment firms. Um, and you had some acquaintance with M.B. Silverberg, who was just an iconic figure. If there's any uh, flavor that you can share on what that was like, that would be marvelous. 
Yes, I did work directly with with, with Mendel Silberberg, and when I talk about uh, uh, talking to people about what they've done, I would love to be able to interview him today on what I now know he was involved in 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 in, in the thirties uh, and forties. There's a wonderful book, Hitler in Los Angeles which talks about the legal organizations that were formed to fight what was very serious uh, Nazi organization in Los Angeles in the 1930s. Uh, and Mendel Silberberg was one of the key people uh, who fought that. He also was a giant in the entertainment industry at a time when a few individuals talk about the age of craft. He, he represented almost all the studios. He was the leading entertainment lawyer, I think, of his time. Uh, and again, I worked with him. I knew some of it. Uh, I thought I knew a great deal of it. I did not. I'd lo- as I said, I'd love to interview him now about the 30s and the 40s, but I have to read about it in the books. Uh, but it's yeah, an example yeah. of the extraordinary lawyers and the extraordinary importance of entertainment law to Los Angeles. While we're just talking about Mendel, uh, we might want to pause for a moment about the growth of entertainment law and, and how important it is today in dealing with content and the associated technology a central driver of the world economy and the growth and expertise of dealing with it and forming the legal forms has come out of Los Angeles law firms. It, it, it was born and bred here. That, that is, uh, that's why the chapter is called Made in Los Angeles. Um, it was, it's an extraordinary story. And um, if anyone doubts the continuing importance of LA law, I like to uh, simply uh, state a, a quote that um, came out of doing the entertainment law chapter. Um, After all, what would you most want to work on? The next Spielberg project or their next Conoco deal with DuPont? <laughs> it pretty much pretty much says it. But um, the the experience of women uh, in the law is uh you know it's it's a long tail um all its own um and uh some of the specific experiences of women lawyers um makes tells conveys what they went through more than so many things um in the 1930s that was about the first time that women appeared on the bench and i mean one or two or three, um, and uh, the, there are pictures of of those er, those pioneers with their gigantic hats, which was the uh, the style of the day. It looks a little funny now, but um, they were real, um, you know, pathbreakers. They had a ladies' day in Superior Court once a year, and everyone, all the personnel. Uh, were women, including uh, the judge, uh, Georgia Bullock, who is pictured in the book, one of the very, I think she was the first woman on the Superior Court, Um, just a real rarity, and how perfect, you know, women that assumed those roles had to be, um, and how closely they were watched, and, you know, differently they were treated. Helen Kemble, became the first woman partner at a downtown law firm. When? 1955. Uh, You know, there were, women were not doing those things any earlier. And to be fair, I have to say that she was 
her, her expertise was probate law. And if you, if you read um, the 1959 Lawyers of Los Angeles, you see that that is a field that women were sort of consigned to, those few women that were in the law. And I, I don't know the reason, um, uh, but uh, it, maybe it's not something men particularly wanted to do. But um, she, uh, she, she really earned her keep and really excelled at that. And so, so she was the, the very first. Um, Carla Hills and Shirley Huffstedler, uh, both powerhouses, they were about a decade apart. Uh, Huffstedler was about 10 years older. Neither of them really had mentors. Shirley um, was near the top of her class at Stanford Law School. Carla Hills was the same at her Yale Law School. Very hard to get positions in Los Angeles or anywhere. They made their own way. I interviewed Shirley Huffstedler along with um, Pat Phillips about three weeks before Shirley died uh, in 2015, 2016, something like that. And I asked Shirley, why didn't you, you know, follow Seth, your husband? And they were, Yale, excuse me, Stanford law classmates. Why didn't you follow him to the firm he went to? It just wasn't done. And again, that's just the perspective we talked about. What was lost? I mean, the idea that lawyers, judges, uh, with the talent of, of, of Shirley Huffstedler, our current chief justice, yeah. or Leandra Kruger, now in the Supreme Court, Carol Corrigan, or the women that are senior yeah. partners in law firms, the idea that that talent was excluded just hurt everyone, not not just them. Yeah. And the one I'm Exactly. I, I think that's such a good way to think about it. And Mariana Felzer, um, who died several years ago, she was at the top of her law class at UCLA in 1957. There again, that's very early. And she said in an article in the LA Times that came out, I think after she, President Carter made her a federal district court judge, I was turned down by a firm that hired the last man in the class. I don't think I'll ever get over that. And then and then she also said in this article that was many years after, I she realized finally when she when she thinks back to that interviewing, I was trying to invade a male sanctuary. Though the harm at the time was to Judge Felzer, and that kind of harm, uh, just as the harm of all the time when basically uh, the Jewish law firms and the non-Jewish law firms were separate in Los Angeles, that kind of yeah. harm hurts the people who are excluded. But I think it's fair to say when you talk about Judge Felzer and whichever firm oh. turned her down, that the firm yeah. was hurt more by losing her talent yeah. than, if not more, than though her, her harm, hurt was very great, cannot be diminished, but we shouldn't. In talking about this, remember that the firm basically hurt itself by walking away from a remarkable talent uh, for that yeah. reason. And it's a remarkable talent, Kathleen, that, that you have that you've demonstrated also in your life in terms of your law practice uh, and your writings and your consistent writing in doing this book in the years that it took, in the hundreds of interviews, in the information that you developed from lawyers in the book. Uh, that, that is just stunning to have been developed 
that I, in some cases, only vaguely aware of, and in some cases, uh, not aware of at all. And I think the entire Los Angeles community, uh, the California legal community, really owes you a debt and the L.A. County Bar Association uh, for publishing and, and being part of this book. There is so much more that we could talk about, uh, but as always, I think, I hope the discussion will continue among those who buy the book and who look at it and learn about the background of lawyers of Los Angeles during this period. Kathleen, thank you so much for joining us, and thank you so much for the effort and the result that you have in writing the book. Oh, Howard, it's been a, a, a deep, deep pleasure to be with you. Thank you very, very much. 